0: Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to another episode of the darkened hour. I'm Adam Fitzgerald. Today's episode entitled The Turning Point of the Arab World. By the middle of the 21st century, Arab nationalism was beginning to lose ground due mainly in part to its socialist ideals being repressed not just from foreign aggression of the West, but by a slow rise of Islamism, or Qutubism, named after Egyptian author Sayyid Qutub, which manifested itself from the Six Day War. How Arab nationalism, also known as Nasserism, named after the Egyptian president Gamal Abdel Nasser, was replaced by the foundations of a venerable and controversial author, Sayyid Qutb, and the ultra orthodox Islamic ideology, Wahhabi Islam, named after its primary founder from pre Arabia, Muhammad ibn Abdullah Wahhab, and how these two constructs gave rise to some of the most notorious Wahhabi terrorist organizations the world has ever witnessed, and how this affected the 9-11 attacks and the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and other past terrorist acts upon the United States and abroad. Unremarkably, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser declared that by beating Israel, this war between the Arab states, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, would be the, quote, Battle of Destiny, or in the Arabic, Al-Makra al-Masariya. The famous Six-Day War between the Zionist National State of Israel and its Arab Nationalist States would be overwhelming for Israel when it was all said and done. The war began on June 5, 1967, and quickly ended just as it started on June 10, 1967, with Israel capturing the Gaza Strip the Sinai Peninsula, and the West Bank, around the Golden Heights. Israel would later admit that it militarily struck first against Egypt, claiming that it was a preemptive strike in the face of a planned invasion by Egypt. It was also during this conflict the American USS Liberty had been under attack from Israeli jets and torpedo boats, nearly sinking the ship killed 34 sailors and wounding 171 other military conscripts. Israel said the attack was a case of mistaken identity and that the ship had been misidentified as the Egyptian vessel El-Khasaer. Yet there are rumors of U.S. and United Kingdom military assistance to Israel during the war, regardless of the incident although U.S. officials continually have denied the accusation. So have certain Israeli dignitaries, unreliable as these are. U.S. Marine Staff Sergeant Bryce Lockwood, after 40 years, vehemently denies that Israel didn't know that it was an American ship, saying, quote, you just don't go shoot at a ship at sea without identifying it, making sure of your target, end quote. Nevertheless, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson simply accepted the apologies from Israeli President Zalman Shazar without any qualms to exact punishment for the offense. Meanwhile, the Israeli border began to expand under the newly captured prizes of their defeated Arab adversaries. This would have reverberating consequences that would have effects still felt to this day, with the religious sector within the deep burrows of the Arab world, rising out of its shadows. Israeli nationalism began to grow exponentially due to the victory. It gave Israel the global recognition as a military superpower. and also gave Zionism the power it needed to influence its citizens and those who will influence vast power, politically abroad, and most notably inside the United States' congressional district for which the Christian Evangelicals became a huge voting bloc with immense financial wealth and political influence within American politics. The American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, would have financial backing from the Christian Evangelicals almost seemingly overnight since the end of the Six-Day War. The division between the Arab world and the Israeli world began immediately. Now, under Jordanian rule, Jews were expelled from Jerusalem and were effectively barred from visiting the Western Wall, with most Arab mobs attacking Jewish neighborhoods in Egypt, Yemen, Lebanon, Tunisia, and Morocco, burning synagogues and assaulting residents. Communist countries around the world saw a rise in anti-Semitism, and the Jewish liberal community in the United States saw a Jewish diaspora of sorts as some American Jews began taking steps to relocate back to the homeland. According to American Israeli historian Michael Orrin, the, the war enabled American Jews to, quote, walk with their back straight and flex their political muscle as never before. American Jewish organizations, which had previously kept Israel at arm's length, suddenly proclaimed their Zionism, end quote. There were murmurs of dissent in the far reaches of the desert landscapes in Egypt, especially from local clerics who saw the defeat as morally oppressive towards the Muslims as a whole. With the martyrdom of Sayyid Kutub, the Muslim Brotherhood, and spiritual author of the Egyptian security services a year prior to the war in 1966, and with the recent defeat of Arab nationalism, there was a vacuous space to fill the empty hearts and broken minds of the Arab world. The Islamists began to take necessary steps to fulfill the destiny brought forth by the likes of Muslim Brotherhood founder Hassan Bana and Saeed Kutub and a famous Pakistan Islamic scholar and philosopher, Allah Abdul Maluradi. Maludidi once began, once stated, that the next step for Muslims was to encroach on the idea of an Islamic state an idea that Maududi was once against, quote, as an Islamic state and a Muslim state, but a Muslim state must not be an Islamic state unless and until the constitution of the state is based on the Quran and Sunnah. End quote. It would not be called a theocracy, but instead a theodemocracy, because the state would be based on the total Autonomy, autonomy, and rule of all Muslims, and not the ulama or Muslim rulers. This idea would spread into the religious sector. By 1975, small Islamic sects began to form in Egypt. By 1980, al Jihad, which would later be called the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, formed under the effusion of two Cairo branches, led by Muhammad Abdul Al-Salam Faraj and Karam Zuhudi. The organization's primary goal was to overthrow the Egyptian government and replace it with an Islamic state. Faraj would be the force behind the group's initial stages, as Zuhdi pleaded for the backing of the military and political arm of Egypt. The Egyptian citizenry began taking notice and backed the group. Faraj closely followed the works of Sayyid Kutub, and also insisted that Muslims began taking steps toward returning back to the days of Muhammad. He argued that most modern Muslims had specifically neglected jihad, which he placed after the five pillars as the most important aspect of the Islam, something that Kutub had once stated in his book Millstones, where the Arab universities and its politics were becoming too westernized. Faraj also believed that peaceful means could never bring about a truly Islamic society, and so Jihad was the only option. The Islamic uprising took the world on notice, and in 1979 would be the year in which many began witnessing the Orthodox movements, which began uprising against the corruption within their own countries. Saudi Arabia, which is the epicenter of Wahhabi ideology, and is the birth of many of these radical ideologies within the extreme sects in the Sunni world, experienced the initial violent uprisings of the Grand Kaaba, home to the great mosque in Mecca. Juhaman al-Otabi, a Saudi militant and former soldier, led the seizure of the mosque during the early morning prayers of November 20, 1979. The seizure of the Kaaba, which was an unprecedented move, especially in the kingdom where many within the more prominent members of the royal family were manifesting themselves to the western aspects that the religious scholars saw as haram, or forbidden. The seizure was in response to the kingdom's crackdowns and subjugation of many events of its influential Islamic scholars. One of those in prison was Abu al azizi bin Baz, one of the more astute Islamic theologians in Saudi Arabia, and who would later become its Grand Mufti in 1993. Many of the imams in Saudi prisons began secretly making audiotapes proclaiming the United States and Israel as being manipulative to the Saudi family, and that only an uprising of the jihadi mindset would change the country and its infrastructure. The occupation would only last two weeks, as on December 4, 1979, members of the Saudi National Guard, and the Saudi army finally rushed into the center of the grounds and expelled the remaining dissidents. Over 255 pilgrims, troops, and fanatics were killed, and another 560 injured, while casualties suffered from the Saudi military were only 20, 127 dead and 451 injured. However, Otabi was captured. His doctrines for the Saudis were declared before the recapture of the mosque were entailed. Some of his decrees were of the following. One, the necessity for the Muslims to overthrow their present corrupt rulers who are forced upon them and lack Islamic attributes since the Quran recognizes no king or dynasty. And two, the, the requirements for legitimate rulership are devotion to Islam and its practice, rulership by the Holy Book and not by repression, Qurashi tribal roots, an election by the Muslim believers. Otabi saw himself as the reincarnation of the Mahdi, the redeemer of Islam. His execution was immediate, as he and 63 others who participated in the seizure were publicly executed by beheading. The incident, however, was not ignored in time. Almost immediately, the religious scholars from both the Sunni and Shia schools of jurisprudence saw this as just the beginning. Uprisings were taking place in most of the Arab world. In Islamabad, Pakistan, large mobs would take to a U.S. embassy and burn it down to its foundations, all under the influential decrees of Iran's most influential and venerable leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, who told the radio audience that it was the United States who was ultimately responsible for the seizure in Saudi Arabia. Pakistan General Zia al-Haq ordered the Pakistan army to rescue the trapped Americans and soldiers and brought the situation under control. Meanwhile, Iran itself would witness a Shia uprising as American citizens, 66 of them, were taken hostage by Iranian radical students during the takeover of a U.S. embassy in the capital of Tehran. All the while, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and its center, Kabul, were taking place. The call to Islamic Jihad had begun. There were other Egyptian cells, most notably the al Jama' al Islamiyah, headed by Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh, which began taking shape in 1992. This was after the breakdown of leadership in the EIJ, or the Islam- Egyptian Islamic Yard, where Karam Zudi and Abdel Rahman disagreed with the leadership goals while they were held in Tora Bora prison. One event in particular that helped create the more extremist views of those within the Islamic of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad was the assassination of Egyptian president Anwar Sadat. In 1978, the Arab-Israeli relationship was beginning to take steps to reconnect under the watchful eye of US president Jimmy Carter. Anwar Sadat met with Israeli defense minister Ezer Weizman as well as his Israeli president Menachem Begin on March 26, 1978 which is commonly called the Camp David Accords. The main features of the agreement were the mutual recognition of each country by the other, the cessation of the state of war that had existed since the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and the complete withdrawal by Israel of its armed forces and civilians from the rest of the Sinai Peninsula, for which Israel had captured during the 1967 Six-Day War. The agreement also provided for free passage of Israeli ships through the Suez Canal and recognition of the Strait of Tehran and the Gulf of Aqaba as international waterways. It would also mark the first time an Arab leader had personally met with an Israeli leader. The agreement, however, was not mutually agreed on nor accepted by those in the Islamist circles as the Christian evangelicals and Zionist Jews saw Sadat as the future of of Arab-Israeli partnership. The Israeli government made known that he was welcome in Jerusalem, and after complex negotiations, Sadat flew there, although a state of war still existed between the two nations. The Egyptian citizenry, still weary from the past wars with Israel, saw defeat, and which saw defeat at every turn, were enthralled finally at the notion of peace between the two countries. Meanwhile, there were internal dissidents within the Egyptian military, most notably General Saad Eden al-Shazi, who along with 18 others had plotted to commit to a coup of the Sadat. The plot failed, but the warning signs were there, even from those closest to him. Sadat began arresting most prominent Islamists for fear that they would follow up on their threats. The Egyptian security services arrested many in the mosques of the, Sok-o, the southern branches, it would have a negative effect for Sadat. For Sadat ordered a highly unpopular roundup of more than 1,500 people, including many within the jihadi uh, cells. Most notable members were Khalid al-Islam Bui, who was also a high-ranking lieutenant in the Egyptian military while being a member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. On October 6, 1981, Sadat would attend the annual victory parade held in Cairo to celebrate the Egyptians' crossing of the Suez Canal. It was here during the initial air show that members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, dressed as the Egyptian army, in front of immediate throngs and hundreds attending, Islam Bui emptied his assault rifle into Sadat's body while he sat in front of the grandstand as he raced out of a military truck. The fatwa of Sadat came from none other than Omar Abdel Rahman. Ayman al zwahiri a prominent member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, however, would continue to have theological differences between he and Rahman. A number of leading figures in the Jihadi movement argued that the nomination of Omar al-Rahman as the leader of the Gamma Islamidia of the new coalition on account of his lack of eyesight, which made him weak, according to Memi, prominent members. One of the strongest opponents of Abdel Rahman's leadership was none other than the martyr, Isam al-Kamari, who was a grandfather of Ayman al-Zawahiri and a close friend. Kamari was a decorated tank commander and major in the Egyptian army who followed the works of Sayyid Qutb and was ultimately arrested for being involved in the assassination of Sadat. The rest of Kamari came after information from al-Zawahiri who was captured by the Egyptian army and was mercilessly tortured by the Egyptian security services. These torture sessions would sometimes extend to weeks. al zwahiri was taken from the Torah prison to the higher military court to give testimony against jihadi members from the army. Under these terrible conditions he faced, he admitted that they formed a movement inside the army to topple the regime and institute an Islamic government. The district attorney in the Sothid's assassination asked Wahiri about the motivations of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Question. What is the meaning of Jihad, according to yourself? Answer. Jihad means removing the current government through resisting it and changing the current regime to establish an Islamic government instead. Question. How would you replace the current government with an Islamic one? Answer. Through a military coup, we were convinced that civilians in the military should cooperate to achieve this end. Question, why did you want to remove the current government? Answer, because it does not rule according to the Sharia of God, glorified be his name. Through these interrogations and questionings, the similar responses from those involved in the religious sector was the beginning to become loud and understood throughout the Arab world. The Islamic uprising of each country needed to be replaced with the Islamic rule of Sharia, exactly how Saeed Qutb once envisioned as himself. In Afghanistan, the war would take place. This time, another Saudi would become mentioned as he would have financially assets, himself in the war, and by using his family finances, which came directly from the Saudi bin Laden group. The construction firm located in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, was founded in 1931 by Muhammad Ibn Ladin Saeed. The young Saudi's name would be Osama bin Laden. He would build roads and also fund an organization which catered to helping Muslims around the world in training camps located in Pakistan and Afghanistan called the Maktab al khidamat or the Afghan Services Bureau. Bin Laden would become easily influenced to a Pakistani imam who was becoming quite a name in Pakistan in cities like Islamabad and Lahore. Abdullah Azam. he started to implement a nude ideology called defensive jihad, which called for Muslims to commit to war against the disbeliever, which were, in this case, the Soviets. The jihad was basically not a jihad within the spirit, but a jihad in the defensive the physical aspects of the Arab and Islamic world. Shortly after al-Swahiri's release from prison, he relocated to Afghanistan. As Egypt began to expel the militants, al-Swahiri's mission of regrouping the jihadi movements in Egypt from Afghanistan was easier than the task facing the the leadership of al gama Islamiyah. The dissenting members of al-Gamma Islamiyah saw the Egyptian Islamic Jihad as being far more active as opposed to the secretive nature of al-Islamiyah. Even Abdullah Azam, the, the imam of the Mujahideen, was criticized later by al-Zawahir. They accused him of being an agent for the Saudis one time and the Americans the other, among other accusations as well. Azam would later be killed shortly after the Soviet war ended as on November 24, 1989, outside his home in Peshawar, Pakistan. A bomb placed under his car was detonated, and by a bank, as well as a bridge. His car was exploded with such force that the body would be shredded to molecules. Him, along with two other of his sons, both killed. Osama bin Laden and Ayman al swahiri were the new leadership of the Maktab al-Khidmat, which now show offices located inside the United States, most notably, New York, Arizona, Kansas City, and Oklahoma. When Al Zwahiri returned to Egypt after the Afghan Soviet War, contrary to his better judgment, he ordered his followers to perform armed operations against some of the top Egyptian political figures. The first of these operations was a foiled assassination attempt on the former Interior Minister Hassan al Fahi in 1993. Egyptian security services began cracking down on the religious sector once again. Al-Zawahiri would rejoin Afghanistan, uh, would rejoin Osama bin Laden in Khartoum, Sudan, for bin Laden was expelled from Saudi Arabia by Saudi intelligence. During his trials and tribulations experienced during his prison stay in Egypt, Al-Zawahiri's ideology changed more radically. He explained the idea of the near enemy and the far enemy in an article entitled The Way to Jerusalem, Passing Through Cairo. It was published in al mujahideen in April 1995. Quote, Jerusalem will not be opened until the battles in Egypt and Algeria have been won and until Cairo have been opened, meaning that the main enemies are Muslim regimes, which do not rule according to Islamic Sharia. End quote. Algeria would also witness its own civil war, as the Algerian Islamic Group, headed by Mustafa Bayouli, who was a veteran of the Afghan Civil War in 1979, and Zajar al Afghani, a 30 year old black marketeer who had become its emir in time. The conflict began in December of 91 when the Islamic Salvation Front, or the FIS party, began poised to defeat the ruling. National Liberation Front, or the FLN Party, in the national parliamentary elections in which members of the Algerian military quashed the election and saw fit to imprison members of the FIS, most notably its members, Ali Benjati and Abbasi Madani, its founders. The wars are some of the more brutal aspects of the primitive mind in recent memory. Mass executions of these favorable to the Algerian government, even mass beheadings at the public square, and the banning of all French residents from employment in television. The war ended and finally in 2002. Nevertheless, the Islamic movement was now a global phenomenon, one in which saw itself as a new threat anywhere and everywhere. It was now trans-international. Its sights, however, would now fixate toward the ultimate enemy, the United States and Israel, the West. Meanwhile, intelligence apparatuses of the CIA, Israeli Mossad, Pakistan ISI, the Mukhabarat, British MI6, and the Saudi General Intelli- Intelligence Directorate began infiltrating into these large Islamic groups, collecting intelligence, monitoring agents from Al-Qaeda, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, Hamas in Palestine, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Syria. Yet large-scale Islamist terrorist operations would be completed all under these watchful agencies, sometimes with assistance. The agendas made by al-Qaeda and those affiliated with it began to make a more personal turn. And on February 23, 1998, an organization calling itself the World Islamic Front, headed by Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, Mir Hamza, Abu Yasir re Fasil Rahman issued a global fatwa. The title of this decree was called The Jihad Against the Jews and Crusaders. One of the parts of this decree was rather alarming. Quote, The ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians, and military is an individual duty for every Muslim who can and do it in any way in any country in which it is possible to do it in order to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Mosque in Mecca from their grip, and in order for their armies to move out out of all Arab lands of Islam, defeated and unable to threaten any Muslim country in the future. End quote. This marked a very important change in Swahiri's philosophy. This fatwa shifted the battle from targeting the near enemy to targeting now the far enemy, namely the United States and Israel. The start of the campaign to kill the enemies of Islam began that same year with the bombing of two U.S. embassies located in East Africa. The everlasting memory of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the founder of Wahhabi Islam, whose very precepts would shape the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and which helped propagate this ideology by funding almost every mosque and madrasa located in most of the Sunni Islamic world, even inside the United States, which would help change the world after the events of September 11, 2001. Not to mention that the United States sees Saudi Arabia as a beneficiary adversary which pumps hundreds of million dollars into the kingdom, which in turn funds these madrasas. The words of Sayyid Qutb would leave an everlasting effect which began the Islamic Wahhabi movement to take steps to implement its global jihad, a jihad which is still felt to the very moment and at times willfully ignored by the intelligence communities, the very same agencies who helped support the Mujahideen during the Afghan-Soviet War of 1979. The movement today, however, has changed. It is not primarily a religious one, but instead one that is used for geopolitical agendas, agendas the late Qutb mentioned in his memoirs. Quote, This movement uses physical power and jihad, for abolishing the organizations and authorities of the jahili, the disbeliever, which prevents people from reforming their ideas and beliefs, but forces them to obey their erroneous ways and make them serve human lords instead of the almighty lord. There is no compulsion in religion. End quote. That came from Millstones, which is located on page 55. Arab nationalism, slowly destroyed by the West, including the United States and Great Britain, which saw the Arab nationalist ideology as a threat to regulate the oil market during the period of the 1950s. It was a slow process, but an effective one. By slowly eliminating these Arab nationalist countries of Syria, Libya. Afghanistan, they saw the elimination of competition within the region as well as fomenting a new enemy, a new enemy that would soon replace the cold enemy, the Cold War enemy of the Soviet Union in 1979. 1979 was a key period in which saw many Islamic uprisings in these countries, which were once prosperous and democratic nations, prosperous for its citizenry. And now what we could see in this current moment of 2020 is that most of these nations that were once prosperous are now utterly destroyed. Syria in their, uh, in the throes of a civil war between the Islamic State, al-Nusra, and the Assad government, which is, of course, uh, which was once uh, the United States funding these um Islamic organizations such as the Islamic State in 2012 and a CIA-led operation, Timber Sycamore. Um, The overthrow of the Gaddafi government in Libya, which now has open-air markets, slave trading, um, and a civil war in itself. And of course, uh, Egypt, which now sees the uh, Islamic radical organizations still currently at war with the Egyptian government, uh, Afghanistan, which the United States is still inside, is the longest running war in human history uh, American history uh, 19 years, and which has no end in sight. In fact, the Taliban and the Islamic state and US military are currently in a reciprocating conflict. Iraq, which uh, has so two civil wars. And, of course, the invasion, two invasions of its country by the U.S. military. Under false pretenses, of course, uh, which had nothing to do with the events of September 11th. And one must ask themselves whether that the elimination of Pan-Arabism was a benefit. Well, who did it benefit? Did it benefit the Arab world? Or did it benefit the Western world? I leave that up to you the listeners of the Dawkins Hour. Thank you and good evening.